Check out a bonus episode of the Flatlining Podcast available tomorrow. Ron and I will be discussing Dr. Joseph Mercola, his fear tactics, and his wild COVID-19 conspiracies. This bonus episode is available on Thursday, November 16th, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Ron and I are going to break down our analysis on the 2022 midterm election results, but don't worry, it won't be for the whole episode, because we're also going to jump into some more business news and talk about why inflation matters. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. Welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, a podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Hamley from Flatlining.net, and with me is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and Economist, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? I am good, sir. I hope you are as well. I am doing well, and I, as we mentioned in the introduction, uh, we want to talk about the results of last week's election, because as we mentioned in the show last week, we recorded it before the results were known, didn't really have a chance to talk about it. Uh, although I, I did share my thoughts on last week's uh, Friday Pulse Check, and you can find that at uh, flatlining.net and subscribe there as well and have that delivered to your email address uh, every week. Also, before we get going too far into it, I do want to, I did remember, I did want to mention this, that we are also now on Stitcher and Pandora. So if those are your two preferred apps for listening to the Flatlining podcast, you can find us there as well. You can just uh, search... Uh, for the Flatlining Podcast on either of those apps, or you can find a link to it into the in the show notes uh, for today's program. So, Ron, let me just throw this at you. Um, what were your what was your big analysis, big key takeaways from uh, the election results last week? To me, the the election proves one major point, which is we are seriously a country divided, um, and I don't necessarily mean the we they, the, but I mean there are almost a 50-50 split on what issues are important to us and what party mm -hmm. we feel like is the best, et cetera. And, and, you know, if you look at almost all the election results, it's down the middle. I mean, the fact that the Senate's going to be, again, probably either 50-50 or 51-49, depending on Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that the House is going to be very close. It looks like the Republicans will have a majority, but a very small one. Um, we are a country that are clearly divided, and the exit polls show that. Now, mm -hmm. you know, what that means for those of us in healthcare is probably not, not a whole lot's going to change. Um, anytime you've got a divided government, it makes it much harder to, you know, get major sweeping pieces of legislation through. And, you know, our most recent history shows that you know, both parties aren't really that willing to work with each other. So it's probably not much change, and the next two years are probably going to be a whole lot of the status quo. Right. And in some cases in healthcare, that might be a, a good thing that we're not going to have anything get, you know, radically different. We're not going to be rushing through Medicare for all or anything like that in the next two years, at least. Yeah, um, absolutely. When you talk about the divided thing, I, I agree with you completely because as I, I watched NBC most of the night and as they pointed out, um, in most of the cases, uh, with a few exceptions, the Senate and House candidates were on par with how Trump and Biden did in 2020 
showing you that not much has changed since then, given the fact that our economy is much worse than it was in 2020, given the fact that we're still in a certain sense grappling with the effects of COVID, as well as now I see things about a triple demic with RSV and the flu as well, because we haven't been exposed to some of these viruses over the past few years. Um, I think you're absolutely right that we're just as divided as we were two years ago, and that didn't change much. But I do, right. I do think that there was one there are two unifying things, really, I, th I think, coming out of this election that we can see from some of the exit polls. And that first is that the majority of Americans do not think Biden is doing a good job as president. But mm -hmm. at the same time, an even greater majority of Americans did not want Trump's version of the Republican Party. And that was soundly rejected last week, where most of his handpicked candidates, especially the ones that were in races where it was a little bit of a nail biter, lost, with the mm -hmm. exception of Ohio. I mean, you think about Michigan, all of his handpicked candidates in Michigan lost completely. And I think that that's a, a I think that's telling for where we're going into 2024 and, and what the results could look like in the next presidential election. Oh, yeah, I, I completely agree. This was, you know, this was, I think, clearly an election of, you know, what do we hate less? You know, because you're right. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you just take the, the, the math from the House perspective. You know, Biden went into this election with a lower approval rating than either Trump's midterm or Obama's last midterm. Okay. Mm -hmm. We went into this election with uh, higher inflation than we've had in 40 years um, with a lot of economic problems still dealing with sort of the COVID hangover. And when you look at the last two midterms, I mean, Trump lost, I think, 42 seats. Biden, or Obama in his last midterms lost 60 some seats. Mm -hmm. And it looks like, you know, the Republicans will only pick up 15-ish, 16-ish. And so when you look at that and say, well, how do you take what is, from an approval rating standpoint, a weak president in bad economic times, and how do they not lose 100 seats in the House? Well, I think it's because the people looked at it and said, well, he ain't great, but he's not as bad as this other option, which right. is, like you say, the, the Trump version of the Republican Party. And we also see that the the Republican candidates, on average, that were more distancing themselves from Trump, one more, mm -hmm. you know, so I don't think this is a a comment that the Democrats are going to sweep anything or that they had a fantastic night. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see what the next presidential election looks like. And the biggest question is going to be who are the candidates, mm -hmm. you know, are are either Trump or Biden going to be or both going to be on the ticket or will it be two brand new people? And then we're going to mm -hmm. see a whole different thing. And as I wrote last Friday, it was, you know, the Republicans were definitely expecting a red wave. And really, the conditions were great for them to have just a tsunami going into the into the House, at least. And I, I quoted from Al Cresta in my in my commentary that really it was a split splash. You yeah. had a little bit of winning here and there, but there was nothing even resembling a wave yeah. uh, anywhere, really, in the country, with the exception of Florida. And that's because you had a, a, an actual leader down there in Florida who in it who had an agenda for what he wanted to do. Um, speaking of being divided, I know the, the Republican Party, especially as they're dealing with the reckoning after this last um, election, the midterm election, uh, you're already starting to see it fracture even more. There was a, mm -hmm. a, a state lawmaker here in Michigan who started his own party just this last week because he thought that the state Republican Party didn't get enough behind Trump and his candidates. Um, you had the Michigan Republican Party blaming the gubernatorial candidate for losing here, and it's in part because she was backed by Trump. And, of course, mm -hmm. she shot back that 
uh, you know, that that's not really fair because they didn't want her to begin with. And as I said on Friday, that's absolutely right. They didn't want her. She mm-hmm. sued to have the people we wanted off the ballot. So, and, and that's how we ended up with her. So I, the, the fracturing thing will be interesting to see is as we, you know, I don't want to say we're watching the end of the Republican Party because I don't think that many people are going to fracture out. But it's interesting to see that finally it took two years of not having Trump to see something formal happen, at least on a small scale here in Michigan. Well, and I agree. And I think, you know, the there are a lot of people in the Republican Party view this as, boy, if we couldn't have a red wave here when the conditions were perfect, then something's wrong. And mm-hmm. then that that's telling, you know, in the next general election, I, I heard somebody make a commentary and said, you know, the the best thing that the, could ever happen to the Democrats would be the, if Trump's the next candidate. And the mm-hmm. best thing that could ever happen to the Republicans is if Biden's the next candidate. Yeah. You know, so which is is pretty telling that, um, you know, that's not a winning combination, I think, for either party is to have, you know, that that guy be the one. And so I think there's going to be a lot of work happening behind the scenes in both parties to figure out who their candidate's going to be and how they can you know, energize their base and try to get the middle before the next general election. Mm -hmm. I want to uh, switch a little bit of gears and talk about politics and healthcare for just a second, because we are a a healthcare podcast, believe it or not. And um, it's something that we talked about a little bit in our Fulcrum staff meeting this morning and regarding the Medicare reimbursement rates. Of course, every year they put out a proposed budget and every year they always say at the beginning that they're going to cut Medicare rates, but it never actually happens. What are we looking at um, going into 2023 for Medicare rates? What's the status right now and how might that actually look come January 1? Well, and and this year is really no different than almost any other year. We go into the, the Thanksgiving, Christmas holidays with a proposed cut to Medicare reimbursement. I, I can't, I can't remember the last year when there wasn't a proposed cut on the on the books. And then pretty much every year, Congress at the 11th hour gets rid of it. Um, I think it will happen again this year. If they don't, we're looking at a fairly large cut to re- Medicare reimbursement rates. I think the conversion factor alone is supposed to go down by about 4.4%. Now, 4.4% at a time when we're facing record inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually what they do is they get rid of it and nullify it. And the reason this happens every year, the reason this insanity goes on every year is that it allows them to continue to sort of game the um, Congressional Budget Office's 10-year deficit projection. Because every year they're saying, oh, I'm going to cut Medicare next year and for each of the next nine years. So that drops the deficit projection for the 10-year deficit projection. And then every year they get rid of it. So in some ways, it's a little bit like if you if you told yourself, you know what, I'm going to start saving for retirement next year, and next year never comes. Mm-hmm. You know, you're really only lying to yourself. So, you know, right now we're staring down the barrel of a fairly big cut. I firmly believe that nobody in D.C. will be stupid enough to let it happen. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing is that, that people have to understand is this game's been going on so long that Medicare reimbursement for physicians is way behind where it should be. Um, If you go back to 1998 and you look at the conversion factor, how many dollars per unit of service um, per RVU or unit of service that Medicare pays, and you compare that dollar amount to 2022, okay, Medicare reimbursement for the average physician unit of service has gone down by 10% down. 
So that office visit, that average unit of service that the doctor's providing today, they're getting paid 10% less than they got paid in 1998, 24 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, put this in perspective. Um, the median home price in 1998 was $152,000, the median home right. price. The median home price in 2022 is over $400,000. Mm -hmm. So we've had inflation everywhere else except physician income when it comes to Medicare. Um, so even if they just kick it down the road and they get rid of the cut, doctors are falling behind, further and further behind on where they should be paid to care for these Medicare individuals. Right. Now, as you mentioned, that this it's probably going to come down to the 11th hour and nothing's going to change going into 2023, uh, especially given that we have, we're going to have the same Congress in, in early 2023 as we do right now. The new Congress won't be sworn in until late January. Let's look forward to 2024 for a moment, because if you have a Republican-controlled House and a Democrat-controlled Senate, does that change the probability of what happens to Medicare reimbursement? Um, we hope not. We've and we've seen we've seen every combination of both parties control, controlling both one party controlling the House, the other mm -hmm. Senate, and vice versa. And the reason is it's pretty much political suicide to be considered the party that lets it happen. Right. Mm -hmm. um, now, the the risk is greater in the Senate because fewer people have to get, you know, stupid, in my opinion, to let this happen. Right. They're you safe know, for six years as opposed to two. Well, they're safe for six years. And, you know, to get a majority of the House, even in a close House, you got to get several people together. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right now, if the, let's say the Senate ends up 50-50, okay, or 51-49, it doesn't matter. You get a couple of people together, one on either side of the fence, that say we're not going to let this happen, and they can, and it goes through because the law is that it's going to get cut unless Congress removes that cut. So they have to actually do something. So all they got to do is stall it and not take action. Mm -hmm. So if you got one Republican and one Democrat to get together, and you know what? We think it's let's just let it happen. Um, so the risk is greater there. Now that those two individuals have become pariahs. Um, mm -hmm. So that's. You know, that's why I really don't think they'll ever make it happen, because in my opinion, you know, the one thing that is most important to every senator there is to continue to be the senator from their state. Right. And we've seen that already with, uh, with for example, Senator Joe Manchin mm -hmm. uh, from West Virginia, really kind of almost playing God with the Democratic Party there, because yeah. he understands that he lives in a red state and he wants to get reelected. He needs to not vote for some of those things that the Democrats are pushing for. Right. Exactly. Well, if you want more election analysis, uh, check out flatlining.net and read my column from last week. And I'm sure we'll have more stuff coming forward as we find out who ends up controlling the House and who ends up, uh, if it, the Senate will either have the majority or if it'll be 50-50 again. Either way, it's going to the Democrats uh, coming next year. So the next chance Republicans will have will be in the 2024 election. And we'll see uh, who's running then as well. I want to 
talk a little bit about the economy and politics a little bit later on, but I want to continue a little bit of a, of a business kind of innovation kind of thing we talked about last week. Uh, and these were both stories that popped up on Becker's Hospital Review this week, and we'll have them linked in the show notes for this program. Uh, but it's two things that I think are interesting because they will affect a lot of people. And first is Amazon debuting its new Amazon Clinic. And this is an online virtual clinic, and they intend for it to be used for common things such as UTIs, dandruff, migraines. Uh, they said they're also going to be offering birth control through it. Um, unlike some of the minute clinics that we've talked about before at CVS and other pharmacies, they're not accepting insurances yet. So, Ron, I guess what I, I want to ask is how much of a disruptor do you think the Amazon clinic will be compared to some of these other you know, primary care chains being bought by Walgreens Boots or by CVS or, or by any of these other organizations? Well, I think it has the potential to be an enormous disruptor for a couple of reasons. One is it's Amazon and they know how to disrupt things and they do it mm -hmm. well, they do it efficiently. And, you know, they, it's a it's a very well proven sort of business model. And, and their business model is around convenience and lower cost. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what they're attacking here in healthcare is they're saying convenience, this is going to be a virtual clinic. You know, you're not going to be driving to the doctor's office. You're not going to be sitting in a waiting room. You're going to be sitting behind a computer screen and you're going to have this virtual experience with a doctor. Um, it will probably be as close to on demand as you can get. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that one of their plans is to have this not be a whole lot of um, appointments, if you will, but rather I wake up in the morning, I feel like I got a sinus infection. Um, you know, let me, or I'm having a migraine, let me jump on the computer and there'll be some, probably some kind of a waiting, you know, you, you know, the next available doctor will be with you in nine minutes or something. Mm -hmm. um, and they're designing it to be low cost. They want it to be in essence, um, less than what you might pay for your copay to right. go to urgent care. Now, they can pull that off for what is a lot of sort of low-hanging fruit, you know, migraines, um, UTIs, mm -hmm. sinus infections. Um, boy, that could be enormously disrupting because that's a lot of volume of patients that currently are being seen by urgent care or um, primary care doctors. Mm -hmm. And how many? But to play a little bit of devil's advocate here on the side of traditional physicians and insurance companies, how different is it though from say my health insurance which has its own telehealth option if i go through their online portal and you know i can either talk to a doctor on the phone or via webcam within 10 or 15 minutes how different is it from that um in quality or in cost because with that i only have to pay my copay um which does which sounds to be about the same here for for the amazon clinic well and i think this will be a lot of depending as can amazon do what they've been able to successfully do in, all, in their other lines of business, which is to do it better, cheaper, faster. Can they make it more of a uh, of an easier um, online virtual experience? Can they make it cheaper than what your copay would be with your insurance company? Um, can they make can they tie that into you know I could see Amazon tying this into a you know mail order pharmacy. Where mm -hmm. you get online and you say, yeah, you, you know, this Heck, sounds even like their a own pharmacy. Yeah, that's what I mean is, mm -hmm. you know, can you imagine, and this is what Amazon does. You're, you wake up in the morning, oh, I think I have a sinus infection. You go online, we can see you in three minutes. 
suddenly you're face to face with a doctor, they run through your whole history, etc. They say, yep, Matthew, you have a sinus infection. Would you like me to write this prescription and have it delivered to your doorstep? Oh, that'd be fantastic. I feel like crap. Yeah, it'll be there in four hours. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a, you know, and by the way, if you'd have gone through your insurance company, that'd have been a $10 copay and it's $7. Right. You know, um, if they can do that, that's an enormous disruptor because the sort of the standard, and, and I'm not saying that this is a great option for an awful lot of things. For low-hanging fruit, it might be um, really simple kind of items, but um, the standard healthcare delivery systems really aren't equipped to deal, compete at that level. Um, they've not produced that kind of lowest cost or the kind of technology to be able to do it that quickly, that easily. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it could be a huge disruptor. Do you think, um, and I know we've talked about this a little bit before with other telehealth options, do you think it could be more prone to abuse than seeing an actual doctor? And by that I mean, do you think that it will be abused by some people who they know they just need, I'm just picking a random drug, they know they need Zofran for whatever reason they have in their mind that they need Zofran, so they're just going to call in and say they had something so they can get a prescription for Zofran. How, how prone to abuse do you think it, it might be? Well, I think it depends on what they let happen there. Um, now, I would expect that one of the things Amazon's not going to do is deal with, you know, um, opioids, class three narcotics, any of right, that stuff sure. that, that are highly, because, you know, then they're, first of all, they're buying off a lot of potential malpractice mm -hmm. risks that they don't have to. If they stay with the stuff that's easily dealt with, with antibiotics and, and sort of lower end medicines, that are episodic and not chronic in nature, uh, they probably don't have as much risk there. Um, and it's probably not going to be as much abuse. I mean, people don't go, man, I'm, you know, I'm jonesing for my antibiotic here. You right. know? I yeah. mean, um, so I, I would expect, given Amazon who they are, that they're going to be very careful about what conditions they sort of allow to be treated this way. And, and I think they've even said that their plan is to, you know, you're going to sort of fill out something in the beginning that says what you're, right. you know, what you're dealing with. And, and then a fair amount of those are going to reject it and say, no, this is not the right doctor for you. You need to go see your doctor um, and kind of that, thing. And that's what I was going to ask is how, how effective do you think that might be uh, filling out, you know, kind of a pre-screening form before you actually get on the, the telehealth call? Um, do, do you think it will be effective at, at screening up people that really need to go to an urgent care or screening up people who think they need something but they don't? Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think what they're what they're likely to do is use some sort of algorithm that'll screen out the easy ones. You know, that will say, no, 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 this is not what we're, you, you, you know, you're, you need to go somewhere else. And then when you get on with the doctor, that's where the rest of the screening will be. You know, mm -hmm. when they say, well, geez, I... You know, I thought you, you said you were having a sinus infection. Well, yeah, but I also need some codeine. Eh, all right, yeah, eh, you know, that's not what I'm... Or, well, yeah, but you, could you also talk about this? Well, no, that's a more severe chronic issue. You need to go see your doctor about that. Mm -hmm. So I think it'll be sort of that first pass will we'll weed out the easy stuff. Um, and then the second pass will be when you're actually, you know, in that visit with the doctor. Right. Well, they are also announcing that you're going to get two weeks of follow-up messages included with that uh, initial fee that you're paying. Um, and Amazon, as you mentioned, Ron, says it's generally going to be equal to or less than a copay. Now, speaking of messages, this was another headline I came across on Becker's this week, and that's that Cleveland Clinic is planning on billing uh, patients up to $50 to do MyChart messages. And this is that online thing where you send a message to your doctor and, and ask a question. And... Um, 
one of the reasons they're doing is they say that doctors are spending time, lots of time, answering some of these MyChart questions, and they need to be reimbursed for that. Um, and they've said that it's going to apply to interactions taking five minutes or more. They're going to build insurance companies for it. Uh, however, Medicare people without um, Medicare Advantage or, or without some other uh, secondary payer may see a 3 to $8 fee. Um, I guess my first thought, Ron, was that this was, oh, well, this is kind of weird. They're charging for messages. But then I started to think about it. I don't really know how common this is, and it may just be making headlines because it's the Cleveland Clinic. How common do you think it is for, for some of these larger hospitals or doctors groups to charge for some of these consultation questions over my chart? Well, so before COVID, it wasn't happening at all. Um, there weren't even codes for it for you mm -hmm. to be able to do this. Now, when COVID hit and it was really logical to keep people out of the offices for, for health reasons, they, you know, new coding was created right around this kind of thing, this, this non face-to-face -face interaction with a doctor. Um, you know, that's when really the telehealth really started to take off, but it was more than just that. It was this kind of messaging consultation because let's say you, you've got somebody with, you know, MS, okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're having an exasperation and they, their Medicare, their medication adjusted. Well, boy, you don't want them coming into an exam room when COVID was rampant, et cetera, because they've already right. got some risk factors. So instead, they, the doctor could message back and forth, and it's, you know, hey, this is what's happening. I'm feeling this, that my joints are hurting here, blah, blah, blah. And the doctor can go, okay, well, now up this dose to here, and I'm going to write a new prescription for this. So there's there's really a, a, a clinical interaction happening here. There's decision-making happening by the doctor. And like they say, it's taking more than just 10 seconds, okay? Yep. Um, this is something that most of the doctors I talk to deal with to some degree. Surgeons less than the, you know, the medical subspecialties and PCPs, but to some degree. And it's frustrating for them because it takes a lot of time and it's non-reimbursable time. Personally, I think this is going to have to be an area where um, we're going to have to figure out how to do this and do it right. Um, you got to be careful that you don't pay doctors too much money for what is a very simple thing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if your neurologist is really looking at it or your rheumatologist or your primary care physician saying, okay, this is what's going on. I want to try this. And they're actually looking at your chart, looking at previous prescriptions, et cetera, that time should be reimbursed. And if we can figure out how to do this right, and I think Cleveland Clinic is good for pushing the issue, it's also more cost effective than having the patient come in and paying a full office visit. Mm -hmm. The doctors don't want to get paid what they would pay for a full office visit, and they don't have that kind of overhead attached to it. But they do need to be paid something. And, right. and the real question is, what's the level and how do we do it and do it right? My next question is, is, is they mentioned that most commercial insured won't see a copay, but if they have a deductible or their plan doesn't cover my chart messaging, they could see this 33 to $50 fee per message. Right. Do, do most plans cover things like my chart messaging at this point? Um, it's kind of still hit or, miss. hit or miss. And it okay. and part of it has to do with what coding they're using, whether that code's covered it's this is all pretty brand new and the carriers even haven't really figured it out well and, and then you know one of the questions from the carriers this is a legitimate question is well how do we know they're really doing something um, well the best way to know that is to go see what they documented in the chart right um, but now are we auditing things I mean are we so this is still a very murky area that I think will get resolved and and I think we'll figure something out on this in the next you know little bit mm-hmm um, finally, messages for scheduling an appointment or prescription refills or questions that lead to another appointment, Cleveland Clinic says, 
uh, yep. will be free and people aren't going to be charged for those, which obviously that makes sense that if you're, yeah. if you're ending up asking someone to co- come in, you don't need to double dip and, and charge right. for the message. Go ahead. Right. I mean that, and that really what they're talking about, which I think is the right thing is we only want to charge for things where the physician is actually doing clinical decision-making, you know, they're receiving information, they're making a decision and then doing some sort of course of treatment, whether it's changing a medication or providing mm-hmm. different advice back to the patient. The only difference of that happening in an exam room versus email is where the patient is. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you can get uh, more business stories, more hospital stories like this delivered to your email address each week in the Friday Pulse Check. That's our weekly e-newsletter. For me, you can subscribe now at flatlining.net. I want to jump a little bit back into sort of politics, but also not politics at the same time, because it has to do with the economy, and that has to do with the current inflation rate. And we, I know we've talked a little bit about inflation and how it's affected healthcare, uh, but I think we need to talk a little bit about more generally, because sometimes there seems to be um, either willful or unintentional uh, misunderstanding of, of how inflation works, and particularly how interest rates are going to work. So... Let's start with, we, we know why we've got inflation right now. There's a whole variety of factors affecting the global economy. Uh, here in the U.S., you might want it. You may be able to blame the stimulus checks for it. I don't know. The jury still might be a little bit out on that. But one of the things that the Fed and the federal government are trying to do to combat inflation is raising interest rates. Why is raising interest rates the correct response to combating inflation? Well, so... Inflation, a lot of economists will refer to, inflation is an economic cancer. It can kill an economy. And interest rates are chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's one of the few things that has proven to handle inflation and to to knock it down. Now, I think that's an apt analogy because even chemotherapy ain't fun. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's bad. It just doesn't kill you. And so the, the lever there is you increase interest rates, which make most purchases, large purchases, much more expensive. We're talking about cars, housing, even people that buy things on credit cards. And what you do when you make them more expensive is you start to calm down the economy. Less purchasing, less consumption happens, and that drives down inflation. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, and as we've seen this year, or this during this year, sometimes it takes several doses of that chemotherapy for it to start to work. And the, it's just started to work. I mean, we just saw our first example of the uh, inflation rate starting to trend downward a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's after multiple increases to the Fed rate. Um, so that's why economists use it. It's the one tool to be able to get at what you want to get at, which is calm the, the, the economy down and make it stop, you know, inflating or heating up too much. If you wanted to do kind of a, a 100% 
free market economy and have just a good total hands off from the federal government. One, you might argue we wouldn't have gotten into this mess, I suppose. But secondly, what would happen if the Fed just said hands off, we're going to let it do its thing and hope it works for itself? What what would happen then? Well, and, and you know, you sort of mentioned the first, first of all, we might have a different problem than we'd have with inflation if there was this hands-off the the government never does anything to mess with the economy because mm -hmm. we wouldn't have we, you know we wouldn't have had five trillion dollars injected into the right um into the economy during COVID. now there would have been other bigger problems like people not being able to feed themselves and you know mm -hmm. all that stuff but if the fed didn't handle it it's a little bit like um you know letting a forest fire burn itself out it will eventually burn itself out it just gets really painful and it scorches a lot of earth. So, right. you know, the other sort of analogy is raising interest rates are like setting backfires to get to keep a, a you know, a forest fire contained. Mm -hmm. um, if they didn't do anything, what we would have experienced is longer and worse um, inflation rates. Mm -hmm. um, they're trying to sort of, you know, make it not as bad and not as deep. Mm hmm. I put on our show notes the question, why does it any of it matter to the average person? And obviously, inflation matters to the average person. We saw that in, in the exit polling from the election last week. You know, people, the economy plays a big role for a lot of people. You know, gas is more expensive. Groceries are more expensive. Um, I know President Biden has been quick to remind people that it is worse in other countries, which is true. I, I do remember earlier this year, the, the euro finally drop down to be almost equal with the dollar, which has not happened since the euro was invented in the late mm -hmm. 1990s. Um, so with regards to interest rates and in regards to inflation in general, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll preface it with this too. I do know Joy Reid on MSNBC last week in her election analysis said that Americans hadn't heard of inflation until Republicans started bringing it up, which I don't think is true at all. Um, why does it matter? To, to people um, other than knowing that, oh, my groceries and my gas are now more expensive. Well, and, and that's the big thing is because one of the concepts that, you know, that um, economists deal with is disposable income. You know, how much money do I have left over to do the things I want to do with, to, you know, to go on vacation or to buy things I would like, et cetera. Um, and inflation eats into that. Um, because suddenly everything that you have to buy, gas to get to and from work, food to feed your family, gets more and more expensive and it eats into that disposable income. And it can get to the point where you just can't make ends meet because to the extent that your salary doesn't automatically adjust with inflation, which most don't, mm -hmm. um, you have less and less money each month and more and more bills. So, you know, it can it can literally get to the point where people become homeless or, um, you know, can't have enough food for their family, et cetera. And that's why it's such a huge thing to the average person. Mm -hmm. One thing I, I always think that's interesting when we get around election time is you always have someone blaming their predecessor for the state of the economy when they took office or even when they leave office. Um, you've got Biden, not, I don't know if I've ever heard him come out and and fully blame Trump for the economy, but I think he's implied it on a, several several instances. Trump clearly blamed Obama when, when he came into office. Obama blamed Bush. I mean, how far back can we, I mean, and I put kind of sarcastically in our notes, I mean, can we go back to Washington and Hamilton for coming up with the Federal Reserve? I mean, how far back can we blame people for the state of our economy with, with it actually being, you know, an honest critique of the previous administration? Well, first of all, I think, Anybody who thinks that any president 
truly has that much impact on the economy that they should either get the blame or the credit for that matter mm -hmm. is kidding themselves. Okay. Right. Um, and part of that has to do with the system of government we have with checks and balances. They're not a dictator. Um, the president can't just suddenly do things. It's got to go through Congress. Um, so Congress, if they, if there's credit or blame to be due, shares some of that. And, you know, I would argue that if you're going to find one person and give who has the most power of the U S economy, it's the fed chair, mm -hmm. um, who can act fairly independently to, you know, change money supply or change interest rates, et cetera. So, you know, when, when I hear Republicans say it's Biden's fault, no, it isn't. It really isn't. And when I hear Democrats say it's Trump's fault, it is not. Um, it wouldn't have mattered whether Trump was in office or someone else or Clinton. Um, what happened with COVID created an environment we've never seen before. Um, you can argue whether or not the, the stimulus money was too much or to the wrong people or whatever, but I don't think anybody will argue that we, had, that we could do nothing. Mm -hmm. um, we had to inject a massive amount of cash into the economy, and that has created inflation. And there was sort of no way around it. Um, so, you know, who's to blame that little microbe that made us all sick. That's who's right. to blame. Um, again, you can argue whether we, it was dealt with perfectly or, or something should have been done slightly differently, but it ain't Biden's fault and it ain't Trump's fault. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that about the stimulus checks, because I, I do know there's been a lot of critique by people about that on, on the right. I know, um, for example, Mark Levin has been very, very vocal against, the stimulus checks. Um, but I think I agreed a little bit more with, um, um, I think it was Ben Shapiro talking about it back when it happened, that the government told businesses you cannot do business. And so that's what they have to do. They have to pay people to not do business um, since they're the ones making that decision in that case, um, which is sort of like it's, it, I don't know, to me, that was sort of an interesting take on, on the matter of, of someone who's generally fiscally conservative kind of justifying why we needed to do something like that. Cause I don't, I think most people would agree you had to have done something. Otherwise you would have had a much bigger, um, I would argue a humanitarian problem on your hands than just oh, yeah. an economic problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, one only needs to look at some of the images from India, which didn't mm -hmm. shut down like we did. Mm -hmm. or and I'll pick India, which didn't shut down like we did. Now, granted, they don't have the same healthcare delivery system, but, right. you know, with mass cremations in parking lots, mm -hmm. you know, just side by side, um, we would have had that and then some had mm -hmm. we not shut down. Again, I'm not getting into whether it was too long or the wrong businesses or whatever, but once you make the decision that we've got a, a – virus that we can't control and we don't have good solutions for it therefore we've got to sort of shut down the economy to some degree then it's by de facto you're going to have to inject cash into the economy to keep those folks from mm -hmm. you know from going under i mean the the workers the individual and the businesses right you mentioned just a few moments ago that you would argue that the most powerful person in this instance would be the federal chair yeah or, excuse me the chairman of the federal reserve mm -hmm. They are a political appointee. So could you, by extension, then blame the political party that appointed them to be there in the first place? Um, I, I wouldn't because I don't know that it would have mattered. I mean, you know, typically and, and, and almost exclusively, the chairman of the Federal Reserve has been somebody with some pretty solid economic chops. I mean, you right. can argue, mm -hmm. you know, whether or not Alan Greenspan was a good person or not, but... 
pretty bright economist. So is Yellen. So has been, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, doesn't matter who it is. Either party puts somebody in place that has some pretty good economic chops and that while they're a political employee and they operate fairly independently. There have been a lot of presidents who've gotten fairly angry at the chairman of the Federal Reserve not doing exactly what they wanted to. So mm -hmm. I don't know that it would have mattered whether it was, you know, Yellen or Greenspan or, or any of the other ones. Um, they probably would have done a very similar thing because it's it's sort of the only option they, they had. You know, first, once they see that that cash is injected, the interest rates are their the lever and they're pulling it. And, you know, that, and that's an interesting point, because it seems like for some of these roles, um, chairman of the Federal Reserve, Surgeon General, chairman of the FCC, these are generally roles where you want someone who's an expert in that yeah. to do that job, as opposed to, for example, and I'm just picking on him because this is what we, you know, this is one of the departments we talk about the most, HHS Secretary Javier Becerra is not a healthcare professional. He is right. old attorney. He was the Attorney General of California. Um, i Puts, I mean, I think uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, I believe he was a diplomat at some point in his career before he was yeah. um, elected there, but past people have not been. For a yeah. while, you had, uh, who is it, Rex Tillerson from ExxonMobil as the as the right. Secretary of State in the Trump administration. So it, it seems like at least with the Federal Reserve, uh, with the CDC, Surgeon General, FCC Chair, those are generally people we have, mm -hmm. regardless of the party, that yeah. are generally experts in that field. Well, and you and you've also seen in some of those fields, those are some of the only fields that sometimes span multiple administrations and sometimes cross party lines. Sure, mm -hmm. you know we've seen that with the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, um, in certain positions. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. The distinctions there that some political appointees don't seem to have the the CV to back up that job, but these tend to. When do you think we can see some relief on the economy? Yeah, I know we, you mentioned that we saw the first taste of it, it seems, uh, this past month. Is more coming, or are we gonna, do we have to do more to get there? Um, we hope so. Um, I don't, you know, our economy is incredibly resilient, so I don't think we're in for a five-year. We're not in for the Great Depression or a five-year kind of a thing. I think 2023 could be a rough year. I don't think we're going to be fully back. I think it'll start to get better during 2023, but it won't be like it was before before COVID. That's my uh, my opinion. So it, you know, I sort of feel like it's you know it's that old you know Winston Churchill quote: "This is not the end. This is not the beginning of the end, but it may be the end of the beginning." Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that the last number that we saw where inflation started to curve down is a good sign. Hopefully, we see that again, but this is not going to, you know, we're not going to have a, a, you know, a wonderful Christmas where inflation's down to, you know, two, 3%. Right. Too bad uh, Santa Claus doesn't exist. That might be something yeah. we want to ask for. Exactly. <laughs> well, Ron, we're just about out of time today. So okay. I want to thank you very much for, for coming on again and sharing your wisdom as, and I didn't mention, but you are an economist. So when we talk about the economy sorts of things, we, we are, we are talking to an expert and not just, uh, you know, Mercola on the internet or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully more informed than he is. Thanks, Ron. Thank you.
As we mentioned a few weeks ago, Medicare open enrollment is upon us. And in case you haven't noticed, the political ads have mostly been replaced by ads for Humana, WellCare, Blue Cross Blue Shield, United Healthcare, or any of the other Medicare Advantage plans, except for Bright Health, but we all know why that is. But as seniors log on to Medicare.gov to use their plan comparison tool, they may not be getting the most accurate information. Medicare officials say that the $35 insulin cap passed by Congress and signed into law by President Biden back in August was added too late to the tool, and the results for the searches in 2023 may not account for that. However, the government in this instance has actually come up with a solution to a problem it created. Officials say that beneficiaries who use insulin will have the opportunity to switch plans next year. That is, if there's a problem with their current plan. They can take advantage of one change after December 8th and throughout 2023 through a special enrollment period for exceptional circumstances. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and now we're on Stitcher and Pandora. You can also find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week. Check out a bonus episode of the Flatlining Podcast available tomorrow. Ron and I will be discussing Dr. Joseph Mercola, his fear tactics, and his wild COVID-19 conspiracies. This bonus episode is available on Thursday, November 16th, wherever you're listening to this podcast.